Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The chair of the State Legislative Rules Committee wants to suspend a vaccine requirement offered by the State Health Department, according to a report in the Wisconsin State Journal. The Health Department would require students in the seventh grade to get a vaccine against meningitis. It would also require that parents get a doctor's note stating that their child has had chickenpox if they want their child to be exempted from the vaccine. Republican Senator Steve Nass of Whitewater alleges the rule would impose an undue hardship on families and that the health department is opposing the rights of parents and adults to make decisions regarding immunizations. Another legislative hearing held, uh, another legislative committee held a hearing this afternoon on a proposal that would make parole hearings open to the public. WKOW reports that currently parole commission hearings are exempt from the state's open meeting laws. The new bill from Republican Representative John Spiros of Marshfield and Republican Senator Van Wangard of Racine would remove that exemption and make the meetings open to all. The proposed bill would also require the Parole Commission to publish a summary of parole requests, the outcomes of the hearings, and descriptive data on the individuals who had their requests heard. Both the Wisconsin Newspaper Association and the Wisconsin Professional Police Association have registered in favor of the bill, with no groups so far registered against it. Supreme Court candidate Janet Protasiewicz has pledged to recuse herself from cases involving the Democratic Party because of the millions of dollars it has contributed to her campaign, reports the Wisconsin Examiner. The Milwaukee County judge made the comment at a meeting of the Wisconsin County Association earlier today, saying that she values the appearance of fairness and impartiality on the bench. When asked, her opponent in the race, conservative former Justice Dan Kelly, said that each decision to recuse is an individual one. While she would step aside on cases involving the Democratic Party, Protasiewicz says she would not do so on cases involving issues she's been outspoken about during the campaign. Protasiewicz has said that she supports abortion rights and has called the state's legislative maps, quote, rigged. Following a surge in car thefts of Hyundai and Kia vehicles, the two manufacturers are offering a free security software update. Kia and Hyundai models made between 2015 and 2019 are especially at risk for theft. Detective Sergeant Scott Reitmeyer of the Madison Police Department says that at one point in time, half of their stolen vehicle cases involved a Kia or Hyundai. The new software update is designed to keep cars from starting without a key in the ignition. The update is free, but is not part of a recall. Dealerships in Madison are currently offering the updates. Hyundai owners will receive a sticker to put on their window following the update uh, to alert would-be thieves of the new security feature. For more information, people can contact their local Hyundai or Kia dealerships. The Madison School District has signed a contract with a new bus company to transport elementary and middle school students. The five-year, $81 million contract with First Student will go into effect next school year. The new bus company will replace Badger Bus, which has had significant problems attracting employees to regularly fill shifts. The new contract should also allow the district to implement the new school start time for middle school students. The district plans 
to move all 12 middle schools to an 8.40 a.m. start time by the beginning of the school year. Currently, 10 of those schools start the day at 7.35. The new buses will also allow all middle school students to ride a yellow school bus. Currently, Eastside middle schoolers have to ride city metro buses. And in more education news, police officers will be present at Sun Prairie West High School through the rest of the week. That's after the Sun Prairie Police Department said they learned of a note that threatened violence against the school this Friday. A 15-year-old student has been referred to the Dane County District Attorney on terrorism charges, according to the Sun Prairie Police. The alleged threat comes a day after a graduate student at the UW-Madison was charged with making a terrorist threat on a social media platform, Yik Yak. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the student allegedly warned users to, quote, start sneaking guns into crowded school buildings, end quote. The student is currently banned from the UW-Madison campus and is under police supervision before a preliminary hearing in late March. One of the most hotly debated issues is Madison pol- in Madison politics over the past few months has come from a change in how the city defines family and how many unrelated renters can live together under one roof. Last night, the Common Council dedicated almost an entire meeting to the subject, approving the controversial change. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has more. After an informational hearing on Madison's sister city of Canafing, the Gambia, the Common Council met for over five hours last night, voting to allow more unrelated renters to live in one house. The change would alter the definition of family in the city's zoning code. Before last night, in about a third of the city, only two unrelated renters were allowed to live in a home. Now, that has been bumped up to five unrelated renters. The change has seen heated debate by the community with over 150 pages of public comment, both for and against the change, registered with the city. With over an hour of public comment at last night's meeting, most of those spoke against the change. This is not changing the definition of family or revising the definition of family. This is changing the rights of non-resident landlords. And I have somebody living next to me that has 10 people living in the home where there's excessive noise. And groups of three to five adult renters outbidding two earner income couples. There are mobile complaints from the neighbors about parties, people urinating in their backyard, trash, sidewalks being shoveled, grass not being mowed. Changing the zoning code doesn't create more housing, which is what we urgently urgently need today. More cars and traffic. A non-owner occupied house will create Mifflin-like areas in the most vulnerable neighborhoods. I keep hearing about a housing crisis. We have a shortage, I get it, but is it really a crisis? But still, some spoke in support of the zoning change. Um, And I I can't imagine from my experience that we're going to see a huge rush to carve up common spaces like bedrooms. I certainly wouldn't advise it. I have always been a renter and have many times split housing costs with other adults in residential neighborhoods. Those opposed to this change are literally saying you don't want me in your neighborhood. The proposed change would address this issue and make the city a fairer, more tolerant place for everyone to live. Passing this ordinance is going to help our homeless population. Many of the neighborhoods on the near west side were historically redlined. And if we say that near west side neighborhoods are exempt from this definition, we're essentially creating a modern red line saying that these neighborhoods should only be accessible if you're wealthy enough to buy a home or rent an expensive unit. After the public comment, the bulk of last night's meeting was dedicated to addressing the issue. Many speaking in opposition were concerned about the possibility of -of out-of-state investors buying up single-family homes to convert them into rental properties. But Matt Wachter, director of the city's Planning and Economic Development Division, says that this isn't likely. 
those large um, private equity funds are very much looking for places that have this combination of high rent growth, but a relatively low acquisition cost. Oftentimes, they're, what they're looking for is um, homes below $250,000 um, is our cutoff point. And then they're also looking for low holding costs. So places that have low property taxes and low maintenance costs. So Wisconsin in general does not meet these, these targets. Wachter says that the cheapest home on the market in, for example, the Greenbush neighborhood is currently going for around $275,000. And the average price of a home sold in Madison last year was around $425,000. Two alders, Regina Vitiver of District 5 and Tag Evers of District 13, offered an amendment to the proposal, bringing the number of unrelated renters who can live together down to three, and to sunset the change in 2026 to re- evaluate how the change affected the city at large. Alder Ever says that, as is, he is concerned that it will open the door to allow landlords to exploit renters. And this is a landlord-friendly change, and it's little wonder to me that this proposal was widely embraced by the real estate industry. The reason Alder Vitiver and I wanted to slow this down was to study this further to explore our options, not to kill this, but to improve it. That's why this amendment embraces and, and accepts all the changes that are included, but for one area. That amendment was shot down on a 16-3 to 3 vote. When it came time for the final vote, Alder Barbara Harrington McKinney of District 1 voted against the change, saying that the council did not spend enough time researching how it would affect people of color throughout the city. While I support updating the definition of family, I do not support the rush to approve this ordinance. We have the opportunity to hold absentee landlords accountable. The focus is on students, but the impact of this legislation will impact all across the entire city. But Alder Patrick Heck of District 2 says that there's no time to wait because any delay would only further the lack of housing available to students. If I were one of the hundreds, maybe thousands of students who were lined up looking for housing. I I think it was last semester uh, as they were scrambling to find somewhere to live. I would take an interest in this and not understand why the, the student dominated areas of the city would not open up to allow me as a student to find housing. This certainly expands housing choice, but it also has the potential to supply extra housing for students who are struggling, as we've seen. Ultimately, the change to the definition of family passed on a 13-6 vote. Also at last night's meeting, the council repealed a city curfew for youth and shot down a budget amendment to give the city's CARES program another $82,000 from funds that were set aside in the budget for older raises. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Thank you. Our next registrant, I'm sorry, there's no applause. Thank you very much. New research shows the conservation movement in agriculture still faces headwinds, but a major federal policy is giving farmers some extra opportunities to adopt climate-friendly practices. Wisconsin producers need to act quickly, though, to receive some of the funds. Mike Mullen is with the Wisconsin News Connection. Farmers looking to enhance their range of climate-friendly practices are getting a boost with new federal funding. Wisconsin producers face a tight window to take advantage of the aid. 
This month, the USDA announced that through last year's Inflation Reduction Act, it's able to commit nearly $20 billion to programs that oversee climate-smart agriculture. Nearly $900 million is available for the current federal fiscal year. Margaret Crome of Wisconsin's Michael Fields Agricultural Institute says the extra money is crucial because these programs are often oversubscribed. There's just never been a time that's as good for farmers to apply because this extra amount of funding means it's more likely that you would be funded. For Wisconsin, there's an additional $2.7 million for the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, along with an extra $4.2 million for the Conservation Stewardship Program. As a result, Wisconsin leaders have extended the CSP sign-up date to March 17th. The application deadline for the other program isn't until later in the spring. And while these programs often use up all their funding, a study published this month says certain challenges are keeping adoption rates low for conservation efforts. Despite broader challenges, Rome suggests committing more resources can help accelerate climate-friendly practices that are key in states like Wisconsin. These include planting perennial crops. Those are practices that consistently have been shown to hold water. You have much less runoff. You have much better carbon establishment in the soil, so you're holding carbon in the soil. The new study, which involves several researchers at South Dakota State University, surveyed farmers in the western region of the U.S. Corn Belt. Narrow planting windows and lack of time and labor were among the challenges cited by participants. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Rob McClure here with my co-host Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half. When indigenous peoples ceded land to the federal government in the 1800s, parts of their treaty ensured them the continued right to hunt and fish in places where they had done so for hundreds of years. To this day, Ojibwe fishermen on Lake Superior and the other Great Lakes have used those rights to feed their families and create a robust fishing industry. But as chemicals continue to make their way into Wisconsin's waterways, some are asking how pollution is weakening indigenous treaty rights. That's the topic of the newest story from Bennett Goldstein, reporter with the Wisconsin Watch. Goldstein spoke with WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt earlier today about his story. Now, Bennett, just to begin here, tell me a little bit about the Ojibwe Great Lakes fishermen and tell me what that industry looks like. Sure. Uh, Well, Red Cliff is located on the southern coast of Lake Superior uh, in Bayfield County. And um, the tribe there uh, is the largest employer, um, like roughly 300 people. And um, more than other industries, fishing is the predominant industry there. And the tribe issues its own uh, commercial fishing licenses, and but people there are also fishing to feed their families. So, with you know, uh, I think roughly in a given year, about two million pounds are are harvested from the lake by commercial fishermen, and you're you know predominantly seeing an industry that is looking at catching whitefish and lake herring and trout and salmon. 
And now as they are doing this, chemicals like PFAS have been making their way into the Great Lakes now for uh, some time. Tell me a little bit about that. What chemicals are making their way into the Great Lakes and how does that affect the fishing industry? So Lake Superior of all the Great Lakes uh, is one of the cleanest simply because there is less development in the watershed. But nonetheless, like industry, you know, throughout the 20th century has used, you know, rivers, streams, and the lake itself as a way to discharge pollutants uh, and waste materials, which contain mercury and PCBs, mercury being a neurotoxin, and PCBs are, is a chemical that is carcinogenic. And, you know, on top of that, you also have coal plants or electric generating stations that when coal is burned, mercury gets into the, you know, into air pollution and then can end up also uh, in the lakes. And then, you know, starting in the 1940s, um, we started seeing uh, the proliferation of PFAS, uh, which are a group of uh, chemicals that are known for being stain and heat resist, used for treating stain and heat resistant products. Um, and through runoff and wastewater and also through the atmosphere, they've been deposited in Lake Superior as well. And what I guess is alarming about this contaminant is that they uh, accumulate and both in the environment and in organisms and they don't break down, which is why they're also known as forever chemicals. And now the the topic of your story here, sort of the intersect between these Ojibwe Great Lakes fishermen and the chemicals that are slowly making their way into the lakes there. Tell me a little bit about that intersection and how that plays into uh, things like treaty rights. So, yeah, to explain treaty rights a little bit, I mean, starting in the you know mid-1800s, Ojibwe tribes that were living in the Great Lakes region, um, you know, including Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan, um, as we now know them, you know, had been there for centuries. And the federal government decided that they uh, wanted to use these lands for uh, lumbering and mining and compelled the tribes to give up their land. But the tribes expressly retained their rights to hunt, fish, and gather in this territory. Within Wisconsin, you know, the ceded territory bans roughly 22,000 square miles. And for the next 130 so years, states subsequently ignored these treaty rights. Um, They would arrest and cite uh, tribal citizens who were, you know, hunting or fishing, you know, on and off reservation. And over, you know, the 20th century, you had a lot of court cases come up in which states basically rejected or disregarded the existence of these rights. But by the 1970s, you started to see courts rule in favor of the tribes. And so now we have made you know, stipulations in state code that acknowledge and recognize these retained rights that the tribes have always had. You know, so kind of where we see pollution coming into the picture is, you know, at the same time, you know, these rights were recognized. We also started to recognize the, you know, the alarming um, number of chemicals that had started to show up in water bodies like Lake Superior. And so since 1970, we've seen PCBs and mercury decline. However, they're still at a level high enough to warrant um, fish consumption advisories, which are essentially 
guidelines that the state issues the public to limit their fish consumption because eating too much of certain species of fish can, you know, potentially lead to health outcomes that um, can, you know, uh, cause problems in people who are pregnant or seeking to become pregnant or uh, young children. So you'll see typically warnings saying, you know, don't eat this fish more than once a month or once a week. And so, you know, kind of where treaty rights comes into this is that when you, when you have a right to fish or hunt, it's only so useful as the things that you're hunting or fishing are edible. So if you can't, you know, consume wild rice or fish because they're too contaminated, then it really calls into question, like, what good are these treaties? And so a lot of people are saying, you know, that not only, you know, has the have state governments historically rejected treaty rights, but now pollution is another form of rejection. And just wrapping things up here, Bennett, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us about your story? So, I mean, I think one positive development is that the Biden Biden administration has proposed a new rule that would require states to consider treaty rights when they're setting their uh, water quality standards. And so the EPA is currently uh, has released a draft rule and now is accepting public comment on it until March 6th. And this would require states to show and justify when they set, you know, the uh, standard for any water body, such as a Great Lake, you know, how they're accounting for these treaty rights that tried to hold. I've been talking with Bennett Goldstein, reporter with Wisconsin Watch, about uh, their new story on Ojibwe fishing rights in PFAS in the Great Lakes. Uh, you can read the full story for yourself online over at wisconsinwatch.org. Uh, Bennett, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. And it is time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, it was a pretty nice day today and certainly an improvement over last Wednesday. You might remember when we had freezing rain and sleet coming down most of the time. We hit 50 degrees for the first time this year out at the airport around 3 o'clock, actually 51. And there were a number of 50-plus degree readings at reporting stations fairly close by to us, especially to the west and south of Madison, including 52 over at Dodgeville and 53 at Lone Rock, actually 53 even as close by as Middleton out at Maury Field. February closed 4.4 degrees warmer than normal, with only 7 of the 28 days turning up colder than average. And we had nearly twice our normal precipitation in February. And actually, that was entirely down to the whopping 1.56 inches that we got this past Monday which was actually very close to a record uh, precipitation event for that date, just five hundredths of an inch shy of the 1.61 inches received on February 27th of 1948. Incidentally, I noted that the strong southerly winds above ground level that brought in all that moisture on Monday also brought the first red-winged blackbirds of the year back into the area, or at least the first ones that I saw over in Tenney Park. So uh, keep your eyes peeled if you haven't seen one yet. The, uh, the grackles seem to be with them as well. Uh, no dusty tetricas uh, along, I, I don't didn't notice anyway. Uh, this afternoon's clear skies were courtesy of a northeast-bound upper jet arching northward up into the area from southern Illinois, and 
Uh, as the upper air pattern across the continent to our west amplifies, uh, we'll uh, more generally ahead of the uh, quite strong upper trough that's now dropping south down the west coast into Southern California and into a position out there uh, as it gets over towards Arizona from where it's going to launch like so many before it this past month northeastward towards the Great Lakes tomorrow night. I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast that the storm looked to pass far enough to our southeast on Friday, uh, basically through the Ohio River Valley, to miss us with its snows, and I'm still putting my money on that trajectory. The uh, computer models have been bifurcated between that solution and another one which tracks the surface circulation perhaps 100 miles or more further to the north from about St. Louis up through uh, northern central or northeastern Indiana. And that track would be more likely, uh, fairly likely, actually, to give us at least a few hours of snow here on Friday, possibly more than that, uh, and certainly more across the southeast part of the listening area. The North American model and the European have been the stalwarts in that latter camp further north, while the global forecast systems and the Canadian have held further south towards the Ohio River. The higher resolution versions of the models, which are now just starting to take in that midday Friday time frame, are remaining split so far, but the very latest North American run has conceded maybe 30 or 40 miles to the southeast. So I am leaning towards a drier solution now for us on Friday, though uh, Rock and Walworth counties could see some snow. And then beyond that, Saturday looks uh, warmer back in the 40s after a couple cool days behind this evening's cold frontal passage, but we'll have a weak system passing on Saturday with a wind switch and a passing upper trough, and uh, some of the models are trying to produce some light uh, precipitation out of that. Uh, it would be very minor if it occurs at all, and I'm mostly just expecting mid-level cloud cover on Saturday. And then Sunday looks to be uh, back in the mid-40s and also dry, so a pretty good weekend coming up overall. Uh, we are looking at a possible turn for the colder by about the end of next week or beyond, uh, but no, still no strong signals on the models about that yet. We'll see how that uh, plays out as we go forward. But back to tonight, passing low pressure to our northwest is in the process of sending a cold front through the area, so skies will continue to fill in from the northwest with uh, low clouds as we go through the evening and uh, colder air begins to drop temperatures behind the front. We should uh, reach the low 30s by tomorrow morning on uh, westerly winds veering more northwesterly at 10 to 17 miles per hour and gusty for a while too yet this evening. Tomorrow may see some lifting and breaking of the cloud cover, but I'm not uh, terribly optimistic about that. Temperatures will uh, therefore, I think, be constrained just to the mid-30s on what will be lighter north northerly winds, uh, continuing to veer northeasterly at 4 to 8 miles per hour. Winds will start to pick up a little more and veer more easterly overnight with cloud cover re-thickening and temperatures holding in the upper 20s. And Friday, increasing east and northeast winds, which will come up to 12 to 20 miles per hour, will signal the approach of that low-pressure system to our southwest and south. And we'll see a good bit of passing cloud cover, but I think snow should stay mostly to the southeast of Madison. Mike and Williams Bay might see a little bit of it, but up here I think we'll be dry. Uh, sporadic flurries aren't out of the question, though. Uh, models are indicating the best column moisture to occur in the early afternoon hours, so that is the likeliest time frame for a snow shower or two. Uh, temperatures will hold in the mid-30s. Winds will be backing more northerly overnight and eventually coming down to 8 to 12 miles per hour. Uh, skies may break going into Saturday. 
And Saturday, I think we'll see some passing sun, though I think clouds will be filling in more, especially in the afternoon hours, possibly, as I mentioned, producing a sprinkle or two. Uh, Temperatures will hit 40 or so, or the low 40s, on uh, westerly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. We'll drop to the upper 20s in the overnight, then be back in the mid-40s on Sunday. At the moment down here at the station on Bedford Street, the temperature is 43. The dew point temperature is 30. Uh, Just a few passing clouds up at about 5,000 feet. Otherwise, I did see the gibbous moon when I looked out just a moment ago. Winds are out of the west at 10 miles per hour, still uh, gusting up towards about 20 or so. And the barometer is at 29.72 inches of mercury and starting to rise now. As the 2023 race for mayor enters its final month, we look back on important campaigns of the not-too-distant past. Here's Stu Levitan with this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, The Race for Mayor, 1961. Madison's first mayoral campaign of the 60s almost didn't happen. Mayor Ivan Nestigan had led the Kennedy for President Club during the successful Wisconsin primary campaign in 1960, and he chaired the state delegation to the National Convention, so everyone assumed he'd get a job in the new administration. But when two months pass after the election with no word from the president-elect, Nestigan turns to running for re-election. It looks like a cakewalk. The 39-year-old attorney, former state representative for downtown Madison, was first elected in a special election in 1956 after then-Mayor George Forster quit to become city manager of Janesville. Elected to a full two-year term in 1957 by a three-to-one margin and re-elected without opposition in 1959, the liberal Nestigan again has no declared opposition when he announces for re-election on January 13th. But two weeks later, just six days before the filing deadline, while he's still unopposed, an appointment as Kennedy's Undersecretary of Health, Education, and Welfare comes, and Nestigan goes. The council names retiring city attorney Harold Hansen as acting mayor, and the city settles in for a pitched battle between two highly qualified candidates with very different agendas. Henry E. Reynolds, 55, president of his family's trucking company, served five years on the city council in the late 1940s and was council president when Madison had a city manager. A founding vice chair of the Citizens Group formed to oppose the Monona Terrace Auditorium and Convention Center designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, he's also a director of Madison General Hospital and the private Madison Bus Company. Robert Bob Knuckles, 43, is Nestigan's administrative assistant and vows to continue his program, especially the effort to build Monona Terrace. Formerly an engineer with Oscar Meyer and Company and Rayovac, he served on the council in the 1950s. In addition to Monona Terrace, the campaign issues are clear. Reynolds calls the Monona Causeway a priority. Knuckles does not. Knuckles would continue the city's aggressive annexation policy. Reynolds would not. And Reynolds vows explicitly to curtail the considerable city hall influence of the liberal pro-terrorist Capitol Times and vows to build parking ramps on all four sides of Capitol Square. 
They do agree on some things. Both would build a new central library and an east side hospital. Organized labor supports Knuckles. Most of the business community supports Reynolds. For the first time in a Madison mayoral election, a candidate's residence becomes a campaign issue. Reynolds insists he lives at 616 East Mifflin Street, where his widowed grandmother started what became Reynolds Transfer and Storage as a livery stable and hauling firm in 1888. But he also has the family home and 200 acres on the north shore of Lake Mendota in the town of Westport, where he summered every year as a child, and which appears to be his primary residence. The Capital Times bestows the sobriquet Squire of Westport on Reynolds, and Knuckles hits the issue hard, but Reynolds has broad and deep community ties and a solid reputation. The Knuckles campaign suffers a fatal blow when construction bids for Monona Terrace come in at almost $10 million, more than double the amount authorized in an earlier referendum. As Knuckles works with project architect William Wesley Peters to cut costs, Reynolds proposes four alternate sites, including the 400 block of West Mifflin Street. On Election Day, April 4th, Knuckles carries the east side, but Reynolds wins big on the high turnout west side, and carries the south side thanks to area alder and labor leader Harold Babe Rohr. He supports Reynolds because they both oppose Monona Terrace. Reynolds wins by 7%, about 2,500 votes. The Wisconsin State Journal editorial exults, while the Capital Times bemoans the election's implications for Monona Terrace. Reynolds lists eight immediate goals in his inaugural message, including building an auditorium civic center, a new central library, advancing the Monona Causeway, improving streets, and covering all open stormwater ditches. Among the long-range issues, improving the municipal airport, and providing low-income housing for those displaced by urban renewal in the Greenbush neighborhood. Reynolds also resigns from the board of the bus company, as he did when he served on the council. In May, Knuckles returns to Oscar Meyer & Company as a project engineer in the General Machine Development Department. If Nestigan had stayed, or Knuckles had won, Madison would have had as its mayor a liberal ally of the president and Democratic Governor Gaylord Nelson. Instead, we had a conservative opponent who served throughout the New Frontier and the first year of President Johnson's Great Society. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported, pledge-driving WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporter was Mike Bowen from the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan. And thanks to Chuck Kademan for getting the news on the air this evening. Thanks also to Jade Siri Ramos for bringing her good fundraising energy in for us. Nate Weggy helped produce the newscast. And Shelly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Thank you to all of you who called in your pledge of support this hour. Vicki, Robert, Mike, Anonymous, thank you again. You make it happen. Up next is Query. Have a good night.